Okay, everybody. Uh, we're going to get started here. I think people will still be joining, and um, I think we're going to start. Catherine, I've just made you a co-host, if that's all right. Okay, and uh, I'd like I'm going to mute everybody and then unmute. Uh, for now, I'll mute everybody, and then we need to unmute Judy. And so, Judy, if you can unmute yourself, can you do that? If not, okay. Okay. Yeah, you're unmuted now, correct? Okay, yep. Yeah, so Judy's got the devotional. Then we're going to have a little uh, update from our uh, technical Zoom security people, and then we're going to go forward with Hebrew. So and as people keep joining, I'll keep adding them to the list. So, Judy, go ahead. Okay. Um Larry, first I want to say um, thank you to you and um, Westminster staff for the enormous effort that you all are putting forth to keep us connected as a congregation. Oh, I was looking at the TV and expecting to see. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's just, it's been a lot to me to, to be able to um, tune into the church services and the devotionals and the other meetings and things that I'm involved in. So thank you very much, and I hope you'll pass that along. Um, to the others. Um, so um, moving to the devotional, um, I guess like some of us during this contagion, um, not including the parents of small children, um, I've had a lot of time to consider the sort of the mundane aspects of my life, um, which include how tired I am of cooking, how I seem to be wearing the same thing every day, how soon I will get fat, when will my salon open, and should I figure out how to use Netflix? Maybe someone can help me with that. Um, but I've also had time, um, I guess like a lot of us, to start thinking about maybe more lofty ways to um, enrich my life and my faith through some quiet time every day. And one of the things I'm trying to do is at least set aside a few minutes um, to do some sort of reading or devotional. And to start, um, I selected uh, from my gargantuan pile of books um, a book. Um, I don't know if, if you can. Yeah, I guess you can see this. Um, it's Parker Palmer's book on the brink of everything, grace, gravity, and getting old. And I probably chose this because I'm experienced in all three. Um, the second essay in the book is called Does My Life Have Meaning? And this essay just blew me away. Um, it's not a small topic on my quest for enrichment, to be sure. Um, Palmer calls this question a road to nowhere. And then he shares a poem by a Polish poet, and I really can't pronounce the name, so I won't try, um, that he writes about. And I'm going to read this poem to you. Love means to learn to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things. For you are only one thing among many, and whoever sees that way heals his heart without knowing it from various ills. A bird and a tree say to him, friend. Then he wants to use himself and things so that they stand in the glow of rightness. It doesn't matter whether he knows what he serves. Who serves best doesn't always understand. And while full appreciation of Palmer's essay is beyond the scope of the few minutes that I have with you, I will share why on my first read, it was meaningful to me. 
And when I ask myself, does my life have meaning, which every once in a while I do, I feel I need more of an answer than it's explained by a happy childhood, a fun-filled and challenging career, a short but fulfilling marriage, a son who's a wonderful husband, father, and teacher, but but drove me crazy when I was growing, when he was growing up, enduring friendships, good health, and certainly lots of significant challenges along the way. And when I read this poem and Palmer's essay, I was relieved to know that my life does have meaning, even if I might know, not know what it is. And what Palmer explains to me is that there is truth and liberation in these lines, the last two lines of the poem. It doesn't matter whether he knows what he serves, who serves best doesn't always understand. And Palmer gives an example of a talk he gave that he considered a failure, only years later to run into a person who was in the audience, who told him that his lecture had changed the way he approached teaching. And the poet's words to him were a powerful reminder that we don't know the real meaning of our lives and what we do, let alone are we able to dictate and control them. So just above these lines, the poet speaks of a bird and a tree who say to him, friend. Palmer says the bird or the tree don't worry about whether their lives have meaning. They simply be what they be. He says they befriend people like me who are elevated by simply taking time to appreciate the gifts so freely given by the natural world. And many of us are probably partaking of the natural world right now. Like them, we don't know whom we ultimately serve or whose lives we change, regardless of our intentions. Who serves best doesn't always understand. Palmer says peace comes when I understand that I'm one among many, no more or no less important than the bird or the tree. He says all he has to do is keep living as one among many as well as he can, hoping to help himself and others grow right with life and love as we stand under the sun. So while I probably won't stop contemplating this question, I at least have another way to think about it which frees me to think about the other lofty ideas that, that keep coming up and all the other questions. So um, with that, let's pray together. Gracious God, give us grace to think of our lives in service to you and the confidence to know that we would not be here if our lives did not have meaning to you and to your world, even though we don't know what it is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah. Th- thank you, Judy. Uh, before I turn it over to events for a minute, I want to acknowledge two things. One, this, I guess this may be the last time Terry is with us, at least in his home in Alexandria, since we're not meeting next week, correct? And just, I know a lot of you all don't, don't know the grind staffs, but Terry and Gail have been, been in this church since 1985 and have been mainstays. Gail has done the flowers, uh, at Easter and, and the palms today. She's done those for years. Uh, and Terry, I know, was budget chair and was treasurer for years. So I just want to say thank you. And I'm going to unmute you so you can cry into your soup, Terry. Okay. <laughs> well, no, I just wanted to say uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize until I saw the uh, uh, recognition of the palms because Gail had mentioned it. But we've been there 35 years. But actually, we've been there for 40 years because we were visiting with uh, – Westminster. They were our social outlet for five years before we actually became members. And the one funny part about it was when we finally joined the church, people said, oh, you're not members? You're always here. <clears throat> anyway, it's it's 
it's been terrific. You all have been terrific. And we also have to sing happy birthday to Carrie Stevens, all right? I'm going to embarrass her. She's never exposed. She's never been uh, visual on this, but I do know she had a birthday this weekend. So let's all unmute. I'm going to, let's see if I can unmute everybody right now. Is she on? Um, You're on set, Larry. I don't know if she's on. Is she on? Yeah, she's on. She's on. I'm here. I'm here. She's here. So, Carrie, enjoy it. We're going to sing happy birthday. Everybody shaking her head right now. Oh, no, don't do this. I know. She's going to be very, very uh, upset. I'm going to unmute everybody. So, let's hit it. Frank, lead us. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Okay, can you make yourself visual? Thank you so much. No, I can't on my phone, but Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And and uh, Ted and Paige actually showed up at my house on Friday morning and gave me a personal happy birthday um, as well. So many thanks, friends. All right. Well, thank you. So now I'm going to let Vince assuage us a little bit about Zoom, I think, correct? I'll put everybody else on mute. And Vince, you can unmute yourself. Yep. Okay. So I'm having, as always, a little... Vince, you're still muted. Okay, now. Now you can go, Vince. I muted you. Perfect. There have been a lot of, uh, I've been having some connection issues in my house, so if I'm stuttering, it's probably not you right now. Um, a lot of questions going around about the security of Zoom as a platform. Um, a lot of things to, to think about, a lot of news articles, a lot of press. Um, I'm in the security field. I have my own security company. I have a lot of thoughts about this. I've written a, a blog posting that I'll be sharing around with folks where you can read kind of the full extent of my thoughts. Um, one that little, the tinfoil hat part of me, you know, Microsoft is pushing really heavy right now to compete against Zoom in the market with their Teams product. And I think a lot of the press is driven by um, some, some, some of the competitors of Zoom in the market. Not to say that there aren't real security issues. Um, I feel very comfortable with Zoom as a platform. I think the company is doing a good job of addressing the security flaws. Um, the issues we're hearing about Zoom bombing and people showing up, and we've even had it happen in a Westminster meeting, happen because it's very easy to jump into a meeting without a password. Um, we manage that risk in these classes by using a webinar format rather than a meeting format. So you don't have a password to join, but when you join, you're put in this special side room where uh-oh. You can't panelist. And if one of you happened to be a troll, and I don't see any Russian trolls right now, but if one of you happened to be a troll, we could easily kick you out to be an attendee and you couldn't cause problems again. So to, and from my perspective, it's the best of both worlds where it allows us to have an interactive discussion, but it increases the security. Um, the final piece is, you know, you'll see stories about, you know, will your computer get hacked if you have Zoom installed? Can people take over your computer? Most of those stories are overblown. There are some vulnerabilities that have been announced about the Zoom app, but those all require the hacker to be on your computer already. So if the hacker's already on your computer, you have bigger problems to worry about, in my opinion. Um, 
but the company is taking steps to address it. Uh, if you have any questions going forward, digital at wpc.alex.org, we're happy to answer them. And again, I'll send out that blog posting so folks can read my thoughts, whether you agree with them or not, at least see what somebody in the field thinks about Zoom from a security perspective. Okay, thank you, Vince. Um, so now we're going to um, just go through, start start with a lesson on Hebrews, and this is gonna pretty much follow the uh, follow the, the handout. And I've got to say that it's always when I, when we come to Hebrews in this class towards the end of the year, it's, it's a challenging lesson to me, but I, I looked over it today and I do feel like there's, there's good stuff here. And part of it is because Hebrews is, it really is a standalone book. There's not another book in the New Testament like it. Um, it is, as I say in the, in the handout, it's both strange and fascinating. It is unique in style and in content. Uh, where we probably know it from, if you have been in the church and for, for any number of years, it's got some fairly famous passages. Uh, the word of God is a two-edged sword, which we're going to look at all these passages today. Um, the, the famous passage in which, uh, Jesus, it said that Jesus, we have this great high priest who was tempted as we are tempted, yet in every way without sin. Uh, the definition of faith that's well known, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. And then this long chapter 11, Cloud of Witnesses, which really recounts the Old Testament, but is also a, a, a passage or a phrase that's used often at funerals. Uh, those stand out as things that are memorable. Um, the the reason that Hebrews is difficult is mainly because it, it, it's really trying to do two things. It's really trying to do one thing, and that is prop up people's faith. the The problem being addressed by this letter is that is that people are lagging and sagging and tired and worn out in their faith. And there's references to, you know, church attendance is down, Sunday school's down, giving's down, all of those kind of things um, that, that we equate uh, w- with the church today. Um, there's a sense in which people have run out of gas uh, in their faith and collectively as a congregation, whoever this congregation is written to, what, what makes it different, uh, from, from our own situation is that, uh, is that it's really because of the reality or the threat of persecution. And so there, there's a little bit of a, of a harder edge as to why people are, uh, are sagging in their faith. Um, for the Hebrews than it is for us, but it still has some, some common, uh, you know, some common elements in it. The, the, the last thing I'll say is that it's just the overall thesis. And I want to develop this a little bit is whoever the author is, and it's, it's very unlikely um, that it's Paul, um, but whoever the author is um, essentially um what we would say doubles down on um, on his theology and seriousness of faith as being the answers um he he is a he is uh, an author who is trying to get people to remember 
the best of what they knew about their faith, remember it at a, at a level of sophistication and thoughtfulness that they had had in the past, and to remember it in a way that gives them confidence to go forward um, and, and face the future that they're facing. So I want to develop that a little bit, you know, along the way that, that people are sagging their faith. The reason they're sagging is the threat of persecution. And then the answer to that is, um, is to stick with the sophisticated theological arguments and, and in their faith and, and not give up on that. Um, it is an unknown author, uh, Speculation has been people such as Apollos, Barnabas, Luke, Clement of Rome, Priscilla, and Sylvanus. Uh, and uh, stylistically, it is very different from Paul. I don't think it makes a claim that Paul wrote it, but because it's a letter, sometimes people are, are you know, attempted to, to say that it's Paul. Um, it is... And it is a letter of unknown recipients. It just says to the Hebrews. We don't know who they are. Um, and the date we don't know. It's somehow somewhere in the 60 to 100 AD period. Um, there are, uh, it is likely that the recipients to the letter are, they can be a mixture of Gentiles, Jews, uh, or both, and uh, we don't know that where the letter was sent. So as my friend Tom Long says, imagine if you were handed a book today by a friend with a comment, hey, you might enjoy this. It was written in America or Russia or France, I'm not sure, by a Jew or was it by a Gentile, and it was written sometime between 1920 and 1970. I mean, essentially, it's sort of a universal letter because we can't really pin down down its origins. Um, yet there is much we can learn from Hebrews from the text itself. Um, it, compared to the other literature of, day, of the day, it's not really a letter. It's more of a circular sermon. And it it is it calls itself a word of exhortation in 1322. Bear with my word of, of exhortation, for I have written you briefly. And any of you who are preachers or listeners among, among the group know that whenever a minister uses the word brief in a sermon, it's likely not to be. And this, this sermon is not all that brief either. Uh, it is a homily that was likely preached in first century congregations and like like much of Christian thought and development in, in the early days, um, it has a lot of, of similarities to, to the Jewish form of, of thinking in both structure and in, in its almost allegorical use of, of biblical interpretation. Um, the preacher is likely male, uh, in, in 1132, uh, what more should I say? And the, and the pronoun I is the masculine pronoun. And, and one of the things that struck me today about it that, that I want to add or just highlight a little bit is it is one of the most, um, you know, just highest level or sophisticated types of writing that we have in the New Testament. This writer shows awareness and use of the Greek Old Testament. The Old Testament that was translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, 
Um, he also shows a knowledge of classical rhetoric forms of the Greek language, which is the, the highest and most sophisticated language of its day. Uh, the basic framework of thought is Jewish, but it also employs Neoplatonic categories, which was, was um, Greek in origin and has broad training in Hellenistic thought. Um, and so in a way, what this person is, is, is an educated um, thinker who is addressing educated people. And it's, that's one of the things that, that I also like about it, because again, in, you know, when we're honest about ourselves as, as Presbyterians and in some way, even as North American Christians, not only are we more prosperous than most of the Christians in the world, but we also tend to be more educated than most, most Christians in the world, that Christianity is, is so often a fast growing and sort of revolutionary movement among third world countries and third world peoples. Um, and, and we really are, that's really not who we are. And so it is, it's always refreshing to me when, when we come across literature in the Bible, which, which is addressed to people who are sort of cultural, culturally like we are, people who read literature and, and science and, uh, and contemporary forms of thought, popular culture and thought. It's important that we, I mean, to, to go on with a little sermon on this, it's important that we uh, be wary of assuming that the 1% is either what everybody is or what everybody should be. But there's there's sort of a special obligation and a special role uh, for us with the privileges that we have. And this is sort of a, a book that is addressed from a person that has some of the educational privileges that we have to people with, with such privileges. And in that way, there's a, it's kind of like wisdom literature. There's some commonality there that, that is, that's important to us and is challenging for us, not just, uh, not just to make us um, complacent, but to actually challenge us on how, how to use all this, all this that we have. Um, as I said earlier, the, the, the problem in Hebrews that it's addressing is exhaustion in the world. Um, members of this congregation as individuals and as a collective um, have become wary of serving in the world, of worship, of education. Uh, and part of that is they're tired of being whispered about and being peculiar in society. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer's famous quote, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Their hands droop and their knees are weak. And the response to the writer of Hebrews is, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. In 1025, um, the writer speaks of calling them, exhorting them not to neglect to meet together as has become the habit of some. The golf course has become appealing. The garden has become appealing. If you're tired and the sermon is boring and you're not getting anything out of church, it's just easy to pursue other pursuits. But deeper than that, they are losing confidence. Um, 
the threat to this congregation is not that they are charging off in the wrong direction, which is much of what Paul was addressing in much of his writings is this, these, uh, various religious expressions that were all pretty intent and all energetic. What's happened here is that, that the issue is lack of energy. Akadeia is, is a famous word in Greek that, that's often used. The threat is that they are worn down and worn out and they will drop their end of the rope and drift away. They're tired of walking the walk. Many of them are, ta- are considering taking a walk, leaving the community and falling away from the faith. And that is, I mean, we can relate to that. Um, it's sort of, you know, we can relate to, and, and many of us at times have been, I mean, if you're like Terry and Gail that have been in the same church for, you know, for almost 40 years, there may have been periods in your life in this church where, where it felt same old, same old, where it didn't meet, meet, didn't mean to you, uh, at one period what it may have meant before. Um, and, and many of us have had the experience of being in churches or religious communities that that we were worried about, that just didn't have much life to them or that were were a dying entities. And that's certainly not uncommon for those of us who have mainline Protestant backgrounds or, or establishment religious backgrounds. Um, and, and in that way, we can sort of humorously relate to this. Uh, worship attendance falling, people aren't going to Sunday school anymore, giving's down. But but the reason for the problem in Hebrews is truly the the reality or the threat of persecution. Um, and again, the further away we are from the from the time of Jesus, the more um, the more they're being persecuted for an idea than for someone they knew. Okay, and that's that's important. Uh, I mean, it's natural for faith and for movements to to lose a little zest um, as we go on in history. Um, let's just look and see um, a couple of places where where uh, the writer is is addressing this. It's not just persecution for falling away, but let's look at. Um, 12, 3, and 4, because I think this is is a place where you see both the tendency to fall away, but also also the persecution. So in Hebrews 12, verse 3 and 4, Consider him, Christ, who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. That is a very um, commanding exhortation to somebody who, like people today with this virus, are uh, are afraid of shedding their own blood. I mean, people that are on the front lines, people that are physicians, people that are being called into to duty, obviously have that sense of service, but but many of them also have a fear. And I'm not sure it's the most pastoral thing to say, uh, well, you know, consider him 
who shed his own blood. You have not yet gotten to that point. I mean, that's a really, you know, that's not a sympathetic exhortation, but it is an exhortation. And, and most of all, it shows the context in which, in which the Hebrews are living. Uh, also turn back to 10 verse 32, uh, 32 through 35, chapter 10 shows this context as well. Um, but recall those earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion for those who were in prison. You cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possess something greater and more lasting. Do not, therefore, abandon that confidence of yours, for it brings a great reward. Um, you know, my impression of, of the people he's writing here are that these are folks who have been with the faith for a while. They're perhaps in their in their 40s or 50s or 60s. They may have, it sounds like they faced persecution before and stood up to it. And now that they are older, they understandably don't want to face it again. But this writer is saying, remember the vibrancy of your faith. Remember the confidence you had then and, and, re- and restore yourself to that. So it really is, I mean, it really is a tall order. Um, in another thing that this author does is, uh, excuse me, if you'll look at chapter 3, verses 12 to 18, um, I, I said earlier that he knows that the author is really in touch with, with Jewish thought. It's, it's called the letter to the Hebrews. And part of what he is trying to do is to address both Jews, but also non-Jews in tying their faith to God's history with the people in the Old Testament. So that's why you have so many Old Testament citations and sort of allegorical or, or use of the Old Testament stories by example. And in this one, starting at, uh, at Hebrews 3 verse 12, uh, he is likening their current experience to what it was like for the Israelites being in the wilderness. So he says, take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partners of Christ if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. That that word confidence, he's calling them back to. Uh, As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as your ancestors did in the rebellion. Um, In I don't know how those of you who had Old Testament, um, the, the period of 
the wilderness is what happens for 40 years immediately after the people of Israel are freed from slavery. They literally wander in the wilderness. And in the book of Numbers is the, the best uh, uh, expression of that or, or account of that. And the wilderness in Jewish history and in Christian history has always been um, interpreted by the people of Israel in two ways, and they're not contradictory ways. But one way is that uh, is that it was a period of testing in which many of them, you know, sort of rose up to heroic proportions and, and passed. The other way is that it was a period of rebellion. That, that they were freed from slavery and immediately began to complain in the wilderness and 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 want to go back to slavery. Uh, and it's it's the story of God's providing them food. And and if you remember from I don't know when I taught this, it may have been in may have been a week or so ago in Old Testament, but but essentially there's a there's a story in the wilderness where Moses pleads for the people of Israel because God is fed up with them because they're so unappreciative about being being uh, released from slavery. And Moses sort of bargains with God and gets God to relent from turning against them or destroying them. And God basically says, um, all right, I am going to allow you to go into the promised land, but not until after all of the current generation of Israelites passes away. This is actually what I preached on a couple of weeks ago. That's where it's coming back to me at numbers 14 and 15. And, and so there's a sense in which, uh, the wild, the wilderness is certainly not held up as a great time in Israel's history. And what Hebrews is doing is the writer of Hebrews is doing is calling them back, uh, to a faithfulness that, and, and to not be like they were in the wilderness. So then in Hebrews tw- at, uh, 3 verse 16 after he said today if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts as in the wilderness you can have that faithfulness and then at 16 now who were they who heard and yet were rebellious was it not all of those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses but with whom was he angry for 40 years was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest if it were not those who were disobedient? This is the preacher exhorting the people to say that if you are like those who fell in the wilderness and did not repent, then you're, then you won't enter the promised land as they didn't. So don't be like them. Continue to have your faith even though, though you're facing persecution. As I said, it's not the most, uh, it's not the most comforting or sympathetic way to exhort people to faithfulness. I mean, so often today when somebody is, is really facing something, we tend to be, yes, I understand. I'm really sorry. And, and this writer didn't quite have that pastoral touch. It's more, uh, you know, remember how you were. Don't be like them. Um, get up, get out of bed and get to work. I mean, that's a little bit of, of the attitude here. There's a hardness to it. Um, the, the last thing I want to say 
just about in, in this section and then maybe open it up for, to see if there's any, um, any questions is, or comments is that, um, as we'll see in a minute, um, the way the author is again calling them to faithfulness is to essentially say what you are being persecuted for is worth being persecuted for. And that's where all of the language comes in that can be, frankly, uh, can be and has been used in a, an anti-Semitic way. But it's all of the language of talking about Christ being the fulfillment of the old covenant, the superior covenant to the old co- covenant. And when you start using language like that, it's very easy. Um, it has been very easy in history for, for Christians to read that in a way that discounts the Jews or can lead to, to anti-Semitism. But, but what he is basically saying is that that in the beauty of all that sacrificial system, that now we have this great high priest, Christ, who is who is superior to that and who is worth your being persecuted for, who is worth being at the source source of your faith. And, and that essentially becomes his uh, his argument. So let me. Uh, let me just give you a chance if you'd like to, to speak. If you all would put yourselves on video, if not, just so I can, and if you'd like to say something, please, please do. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Yeah, just so it, it helps me if you, helps me if you literally raise your hand just so I can call on you in some kind of order. So Terry, go ahead. I see you first. Okay, thanks. Uh, one of the aspects that was a little confusing to me and somewhat troubling was in chapter 6, he's trying to exhort them about falling away from their beliefs, but it says in verse 4, it's impossible to restore again to repent those who have enlightened and uh, have tasted the heavenly gift and blah, 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 blah. And it, it says, I guess, at the end, it was, I was kind of saying, well, gee, it's impossible to basically come back. Yeah, it's, that's a tough verse. And I sort of didn't read that one. Okay. <laughs> I sort of skipped over that one. Right. Uh, but, but again, that, I, I think that's a verse that if you, if you take it out of context, um, and just have that one verse. It does sound like you're gone and done for if you have had faith and then slipped away from it, which means a lot of us are gone and done for. That's right. But right. it kind of clarifies it, I think, at the end. It says where they, uh, they, uh, and then they have fallen away since on their own they are crucifying again the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. I didn't know if that was something that he recognized as a kind of way they were acting. Yeah, I think he's saying, I think the writer's saying that that's a continual way he's acting. That the verse that I read from, from three, uh, where he says, you know, uh, as it is said today, if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts as in rebellion, uh, he, he is saying, you know, live as if 
live as this is today. That, right. that always this decision and opportunity. I mean, the, the whole theory of the whole purpose of exhortation is not uh, not to beat a dead horse or to you know continual punishment on a body that's already dead. It is to to get people to to turn around. And so so the as harsh as the language sometimes is, it's with the hope and the desire that repentance will happen, that people will be restored, that they will turn. Okay? Okay. Anybody else want to say anything or ask any question? We really have time, so you're free to do that. Does David Donsler want to say something? Looks like Bill has got a hand. Bill, okay. This is... um... An explanation I've always been given uh, about why we believe that once you have been saved, you cannot lose your salvation, even if you think you're losing your faith. Um, To put it in really modern terms, if Christ has written your name in the book of the Lamb, remember that in biblical times, they had neither an eraser nor ink eradicator. Yeah. So once you're in, you're in. Who's talking? This is Phil talking. This is Phil. Yeah. Um, Second, if you um, have been saved and you have accepted Christ and Christ died for your sins on the cross and you now say that you have lost your faith, are you saying that Christ died in vain? I don't say that. Yeah. Uh, Once I've accepted him, I've accepted him. Okay, I won't preach anymore. No, that's great. I have a wonderful relationship with Phil about which we agree agree very little, correct? (laughs) That's (laughs) true. My great nemesis. But that is wonderful. And that, that is a truly sort of classic, almost Calvin and Lutheran reform doctrine that, that we have Sort of like, you know, sort of like the teacher you had that you had to work pretty hard to fail. You got to work pretty hard to undo the grace of God that's been given. That's a fair way of saying it. So I take great comfort in that. Thank you, Phil. We're together. All right. So I'd shake your hand if you weren't sequestered at Goodwin House. (laughs) I'd come over and bring you an ice cream cone, but not yet. other comments from anybody on this? Well, I have a question just from the standpoint of the context. Would you believe that perhaps the, the congregations that, that um, the writer was writing to had the luxury of understanding and also um, referring back to some of Paul's letters? The reason being because he was more uh, upbeat and saying, these are things you need to do, and the grace of God will keep you no matter what, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Let's let's hold the upbeat part of that, because I think there are some of these passages in here that are enormously upbeat that we'll get to in a minute, okay? okay. Um, I'm not sure, I'm, and I've never seen scholarship one way or the other on whether the writer of Hebrews was familiar with the letters of Paul. 
it's an entirely different thought form and language. And, and if indeed they were written at the earlier, I mean, so the date's probably 65 to 100. If they were written around 65 or 70, he very well may not have. Okay. That's about when Paul was writing. So, Pat, were you going to say something earlier? Or was no. that? Okay. Okay. Sorry. Yes, Stephanie. Yeah, can you hear me? I just thought this was beautiful, whoever wrote it with all the exhortations. But some of the language, to your point about the sophistication of the writing, I mean, my favorite passage that I wrote down and was astonished by, let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Yeah. I just, I I think that's gorgeous. Yeah, it is. It is. Because we don't like the word provoke. In in our culture, we don't like the word exhort, you know, religiously. It's got such negative connotations, but it's, and it goes back to what I said to Terry. You're truly trying to exhort people to be restored to the faith that that's truly theirs, that they truly had. And, And to provoke yourself back to that is neat. So thank you for saying that. So let's go. Um, hey, Larry. Yes. Who's that? This is Nate. How you okay. doing? Hey, Nate. So there, there's something that you mentioned earlier about um, you know, he's not very pastoral in these passages, um, and, but, but he's trying to remind them that what you're being persecuted for is worth it. Um, and, you know, something hit me when you said that is like he's just reminding them that life is tough. Life is a sacrifice. Yeah. Um, your ancestors went through it. You're going through it as a community and as an individual. Um, but you have to bear that burden because Christ bore that burden. Yeah. And you have to, to a certain extent, you know, you have to meet him at the center of the cross. Um, yeah. And in your own personal day to day struggle, you have to, you know, pick your cross, pick your burden and bear it. Yeah. Um, it's, and he's reminding them that you're not in this alone. Um, but don't go away from the church as the answer to your problems. Yeah. Because then you're, then you're by yourself yeah. out in the world with no support group. Yeah. That's good. This, that's good, Nate. This, this is really a good book for Holy Week. It's really a good book for approaching, you know, Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and, and all that's coming up. So, so thank you. So I'm going to mute everybody and then pick up with the next section. So here we go. Okay. Um, you can hear me though, can't you? Okay, good. I never know if mute all includes myself or not, so I guess not. So what I'd like to do now is just talk a little bit about, you know, what I said earlier. Um, and, and I'm going to be reading from the section that says, you know, the preacher's response to the problem and, and the, and the preacher's response is preaching and theology. And I've got to say, that this is a purely self-interested exercise on my part because it is absolutely music to my ears. Um, and I say it because, uh, you know, I mean, I've, the, the Presbyterian church nurtured me as a young person and, and I was in it in college and it's just always been this wonderful home and, and source of life for me, uh, uh, really all of my, my life and certainly all my, my thinking life. And yet, even at the earliest ages in high school and college, I was aware, because there was so much writing in those days, 
about just the declining membership. And I'm, and I'm actually, many of us in this room are old enough to have been sort of stepped into the mainline Protestant denominations like Presbyterian and Lutheran and Episcopal and Methodist back when they had a lot of cultural sway or at least thought that they had a lot of cultural sway. I mean, we mainline Protestants are about 15% of the population now. We were about, you know, a good 30 to 50%, probably 30 to 40% of the population back back when I was a young person. And you didn't have the mega churches. You didn't have uh, all these other divided Protestant denominations. So, so in a way, I've always been aware that I'm, that I've stepped into a tradition that if you were talking in the business world, it would be, it would be a declining industry. It would be, you know, a, a biz, you know, it'd be like going into the auto business in the seventies or something. It just, you know, was something that had seen its better days, the American auto business. But, um, but what's neat about that, and that, that's not an issue of persecution, but, but what, why this section resonated with me is I've sort of, I know that I have always gone to churches and when I've ever interviewed with churches and, and pulpit committees are great about asking, I mean, every church I've gone to has been following a period of declining membership. And, and a, and a big question on churches minds is, you know, what can we do to get young families? What can we do to get young people? What can we do to stop shrinking? And there's an anxiety about that. And there was something about me that just always said, and part of it's because I'm basically a, you know, a stuffy God's frozen chosen Presbyterian of, of saying, you don't have to go, you don't have to change. You don't have to go in for new gimmicks. Just try to have confidence in the faith as you have known it and, and sort of be yourself in your best faith. And, and leave the rest to God. And I really have tried to do that. So it's great when you're that way and then you read a book in the Bible that sort of affirms that, you know, it's just always great. So in that context, I want to just read why this part of, of Hebrews excites me. And I'm reading from the preacher's response to the problem is preaching and theology. And this returns to my friend Tom Long. But um, the author of this book, the preacher, is bold and brash enough to think that Christology, which is the the branch of theology that tries to define who Jesus Christ is, to think that Christology and preaching are the answers to the problems that are vexing the Hebrews. This writer does not appeal to improved group dynamics, to conflict management techniques, to reorganization of the mission structures, or to snappy worship services to try to get people back. Um, I can tell you my entire ministry, there's always consultants that say, well, we need to reorganize the denomination, or well, we need to change to creative worship, or well, you know, we need to do a conflict management, which is often true. Or you need to work on group dynamics. What this writer of Hebrews says is, is all of that stuff may have its place, but what really matters is your theology and your preaching. Uh, so rather he preaches to the congregation himself in complex theological terms about the nature and meaning of Jesus Christ. 
He doesn't float around the surface where the desires of people cluster eagerly around this or that fad. I mean, this is music to my ears, folk. This is absolute music to my ears. I don't know if, if any of you all remember one of the early uh, Garrison Keeler tapes that's called Gospel Birds. Does anybody remember that? Anybody my age that listened to Gar- Garrison Keeler? It's, it's a, it's a tape where in the, the Lutheran church in Minnesota, the, there's a traveling troupe of people that bring these gospel birds and will do a worship service where the birds are all in the sanctuary and they're doing tricks and the cages and all that. And naturally the good citizens of Lake Wobegon turn out because it's something new and they want to hear the gospel birds. Well, as it turns out in the tape, the birds get out of the cages and do what birds do when they get nervous and out of the cages. And it's an absolute disaster. And, you know, the writer to Hebrews doesn't want gospel birds. He wants the basic preaching and teaching. But he does it in ways that are, uh, that have depth to it. They don't, you know, they're not around the surface. Uh, they call on the profound symbols and the religious imagination to generate surprise, wonder, gratitude, and finally obedience. Uh, it's out of phase and counterintuitive. It violates the notions that congregations are allergic to serious theological thinking. Hebrews is, in that sense, refreshing and even revolutionary. Uh, and, it, you know, I've just said over and over and over uh, in, in, you know, being at, at Westminster, I've just been so appreciative about how people uh, really seem to respond. I mean, I've I've always brought in a lot of literature and I always keep waiting for people to push back and say, you're just getting too far afield or you're getting too, um, too much over our heads. And I don't say that, you know, to be arrogant. I mean, I just try to share what, what I'm reading and what I'm thinking. And, and people just seem really appreciative of that. And, and I do believe as, as the writer of Hebrews that, um, that there is wonder and there's gratitude and surprise. It's not to try to be snooty and, and intellectual. It's trying to be as, as deep as possible. And I think that is what this writer is trying to do. So I love reading that. Um, I went through a period at one point, well, I mean, I've always had doubts about, you know, my preaching and about my leadership. But I remember a person my age in Iowa, I was sharing this one time and just saying is, you know, is this too, too far removed from what people need or really looking for. And, and this person said to me in one of the kindest and most affirming things I've said is he said, you are really preaching about universal things. They will never go away. Those questions will never go away. And that was just kind of reassuring to me. The writer of Hebrews wants you to preach and teach about universal things because he is saying that's truly that's truly what the nature of the faith is about. And it's in that context that he does all of this work of bringing the Old Testament language and symbols and events and law, the sacrificial system, into the New Testament and essentially reinterpreting them, reimagining them uh, for uh, for Christians. So it is a 
at its best, it's an acknowledgement of the roots in Judaism and the bringing of that into uh, his his faith in Christ is the fulfillment of that. But anytime you do that and when you do it, uh, as he does at points with um, now, now we have a superior covenant or superior sacrifice. It's really open to, um, to the, to a Christian tendency to, to become anti-Semitic or to say the Jews don't matter. And that's, that's part of the downside of, of this book is it can be used that way. So we're at five o'clock. I'm going to unmute and just see if there's any questions or comments for a little bit and then we'll take our break. Judith Green, J.A. Green. <laughs> Do you have a comment? Um, no, I don't. Okay. <laughs> your square becomes yellow, and I don't know if that means you're jumping up, waving your hand, or if it means your knee has hit the computer and become yellow and made a noise. So, hello, patients. You're back. It's good to see you. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. good. I'm good. Paula, did you want to say anything? I'm just following the yellow, the yellow brick road here. Okay. It doesn't look like it. So everybody will take about. Larry. Yes. This is actually Dana. I, um, we're together and it's just under her name. Anyway, um, I'm wondering if. First of all, I appreciate your, your preaching and as clearly everyone does. Um, and, uh, I heard that first actually from a gospel bird, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but what I'm wondering is during this, uh, this time, which we all hate to call it the same thing but anyway, during this period of time, I'm wondering if, um, religion or let's say uh, institutionalized religion which is so readily available i mean we can sit at home and go to several church services right. um i'm i'm wondering what that impact might be on the church itself and secondly i'm wondering if one of the things i don't love about your preaching is um and and others like you um am I supposed to say right now there's no one like you but never mind um I was gonna say that uh is telling the truth and this is such a time when telling the truth is in such a rare spot in our lives. Um yeah let me let me mute so I can answer that. Um I I do think that the writer of Hebrews would put a very strong value on telling the truth, uh, period. And um, I, I'm not sure that that's a theme of his so much as something that he is returning to, to what is, what is, what is basic and true and rich and meaningful in, in, in your faith. Uh, and, and so I, I do think you're on to something there. Okay. Does anybody else have a question or comment? Larry, I was, uh, it's Roger. Um, I, I was totally confused by the priestly order of 
the high priest. And what was the, what was the purpose of that discussion or the, what was he trying to tell us? Um, I, I think that is generally, uh, I, I think that that is generally part of his bringing. I, I don't, I can't answer that specifically, but it is, I think at its best, what, what he is saying, and we'll, we'll look at this. This may be a passage we're going to look at in, in a minute on four, but, uh, in chapter four, but he is really drawing on the richness of the sacral sacrificial system to Judaism and say, now we have a great high priest who has passed through the, through the heavens and, and linking that sacrificial language with the past. So, so the best that I can do with it, Roger, is to say that, that, that he's taking what is the best in, in the Old Testament and Jewish past and trying to make it present, trying to, and, and say that it is fulfilled in Christ and, and it is given new life in Christ and taken to a new level in Christ. And that is a tricky operation because it can so easily become dismissive of the past. And in that sense, it's similar to what, to what Paul was, was also about that balance between not dismissing the past, but, but bringing it into the future and building on it. So, but it is very confusing and hard and hard. I will say that. Okay. Any other, go ahead. uh, Make a connection between that and, and Christ having uh, the credentials, so to speak. Right. Uh, The connection, the credentials that Christ has is he was tempted. We're going to look at this passage in a minute. He was okay. tempted in every way that we were tempted, yet without sin. He suffered in every way we suffered, yet still overcame. So let's let's look at that after the break. So so Judith and Dana, do you have virtual cookies for us, or is that just not a possibility? We're, I think I think in the last class everybody's going to have to bring their best cookie so we can eat cookies. We're eating them now. You're eating them now. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Okay. So let's take uh it's five oh five. Let's everybody be back in place and ready to go by five fifteen, okay? Thank you. That's ten you got a good ten minute break today, okay? I'm gonna ask everybody to come back so we can get started. I don't know how far the voice carries into the homes. So, yeah. Larry, by the way, I need to let you know, we'll be, um, I may not be there the Sunday after Easter, but the Sunday after that, the 26th, we'll be in Florida. I'm going to try to hook up so I can at least come in. Yeah, that'd be great because that's, that's our next to the last time. Maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe you can the third too. So good. Okay. Let's, um, what I'd like us to do now is, is to look the, for the rest of the time today, I want us to look at two chapters that, that are pretty classic in the book of Hebrews. One is, is chapter four. And then the second is chapter 11 leading into 12 one. 
And both of these are going to be ways in which the writer is, is again trying to reinstill and recall um, this faith and confidence that, that, uh, that the Hebrews have. The, the first one, let's turn to chapter four, one to 13. And we, we talked about this chapter a little bit earlier, but I want to, uh, I want to introduce it by saying that, uh, he's going to be talking about rest here. And rest is, has, has two usages or uses two different words for it. One is sort of the common word for rest, but then the Sabbath word for rest is where he's really talking about, about salvation. And what I want you to hear here is some, some of the words that I'll emphasize about, um, the possibility of returning to God's good grace, to returning to faith, even though they have fallen away, which is something we were talking about earlier, earlier in the class. So I'm just going to read starting at Hebrews 4, verse 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering God's rest is still open, notice the phrase still open, let us take care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as to them, just as to those in the past. But the message that they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened, or it didn't meet with faith in those who heard. So what he's saying is that people in the past that didn't benefit from this were people who didn't respond in faith, as a way of saying you can respond in faith. For those who have believed, enter that rest, just as God has said, as in my anger I swore, they shall not enter my rest. He's, he's continuing to say that there is human choice in, in, in accepting this faith. Um, then down at verse six, verse six, since therefore again it remains open for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he sets a certain day today saying today if you hear his voice, do not burden your hearts. And then he goes on in verse eight. It, it kind of gets easier after this. For if Joshua had given them rest, but Joshua didn't, God would not speak later about another day. So then a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from his um, at, at the creation story. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. Again, he's really talking about people in the time of wilderness who didn't, you know, who didn't live up to the faith, who didn't, who didn't embrace it and believe. And he's saying that that continues to be open as it was open for them in the past and, and it continues to be open in, um, in the present. Um, as, as much as he, and, and one of the things he's saying is that this, you know, this speaks to both Gentile and Jews that that openness, that, that openness to faith remains. Then he goes into, uh, in chapter four, verse 12 and 13, one of these well-known verses that I spoke to you about, 
uh, the two-edged sword. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before God, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Now, granted, this is not the most uplifting image of being sort of dismembered or, you know, or, uh, or divided, but I think it speaks to the, the earlier comment of what this writer of Hebrews is trying to do. And that is really trying to get at the heart and the depth and essence of things. I mean, he is not, uh, this is not so much an image to torture as it is to say that, that the word of God that comes to us comes into our very, very essence and divides what is real or what is essential, what's real or what is essential from what is, what is less than real. And, and, you know, that's really the intention there because then he goes in the very next verse to, to four, to four, 14 to 16, which is, which is a well-known passage from this book. And I think, I think this is what pass, what Patrick preached on a couple of weeks ago. And, and it begins with the word sense or the way I learned it was the word therefore. And I can only say that. <laughs> When you come across the word therefore in the New Testament, it is a very powerful word. I mean, we think of it as being a throwaway word, but it's not. It's like everything that I have been saying or that's been said before this leads to this moment of therefore, therefore. And so what he is saying, this may address what Roger asked earlier. Therefore, Therefore, then, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that's a reference to the transfiguration, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Um, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tested or tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, again, therefore, approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Um, I heard that press passage preached by uh, Gardner Taylor, a great African-American preacher in when I was at seminary. But if, if you think about, uh, if you think about the context, he is, what he is saying is that among the things he's saying is that, is that in the past we've had these high priests. But what we have now is a high priest up here who has literally come from and passed through the heavens. And 
It's a double negative, but he's saying we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The prosaic way of saying that would be we have a high priest, somebody high and mighty up here, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. It is a, it is an affirmation of, of Christ as being God with us in a way that is totally able to identify with us and sympathize with our weaknesses, with our weaknesses or our suffering. Because then he goes on to say, but we have a high priest who in every respect has been tested or tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, because we have this high priest who can identify with us and be at our level, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, which is what he's trying to get them back to, so that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. It it is a wonderful passage that just sort of summarizes, you know, the, the beginning of Christ in with God in creation and this descent into the world, um, this passing through all of the suffering and all of the temptation and all of the sin that, that we are beset with, and yet in his heroic nature is without sin, but therefore is an accessible throne of grace to which we can approach and, and receive mercy and receive strength uh, to keep going. It is a, it is a wonderful, wonderful passage. Uh, so I want to give you a chance to respond. And if, if you want to say something or ask a question, just unmute yourself and, uh, and see if that makes any sense to you. Is it, is it helpful? Is it? Larry, this is Stephanie. Okay, so, so right in five Hebrews five seven, he took the, the author talks about Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. So I was confused by that and underlined it because I was thinking that the author of Hebrews did not believe Jesus was the Messiah before he died, but only after he died, as some of his followers did. I was trying to figure out how do you get from oh. loud cries and tears? Am I just misreading that? No, that's that's a great question. Um, I, I I can see where you would in where you would interpret it that way um, because when you think in the days of his flesh, but the reality is because Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. He's he's Christ both in in his flesh and in his divine nature. It's this mysterious combination of of the two. And so what the writer here is saying that in the days in which this great high priest was in the flesh, his high priestness, his divinity didn't leave him, but he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears because he took on the suffering that human beings would suffer. And, And it would be consistent with, with 416 about, you know, the, the reason we can identify with Christ is because he is literally going through what we've been through. I mean, that there's no suffering we go through that he's not been through. He is, 
majestically and mysteriously without sin. I mean, which makes us even turn to him in a greater way because, because we, when we're tempted from time to time, <laughs> give in, but, but he has not, but, but it doesn't mean that in, in this, in this mystery of who he is, that he does not experience the temptation any less than we do. So it's this great combination of highness and lowness, of highness and and being like us that 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 gives him the credibility. And that's how the writer's pulling back to the Old Testament because the high priest was such a a wonderful and vaulted image mm-hmm. there. So I'm glad you pointed that verse. Yeah, Catherine. I'm going to say, I, I did struggle with this a lot. I think maybe this is some of what Roger was saying earlier, the, the a number of references to the high, to the, like the order of priests of Melchizedek. Right. And I, and I, and it seemed very strange to me to affiliate Christ with like, to say he's part of this order named after this other human person who we don't um, hear about anywhere else in the New Testament. And it was kind of like a disorienting, you know, you talk about it's not by Paul. Like it's just very different. It feels like very different um, language than comes up anywhere else. But I actually I was helped by some of the later parts. It's chapter nine, where the writer talks about um, talks about some of the Old Testament the the rules of sacrifice and the and the um, the tabernacle and the, the outer tent and the inner tent and, and sort of those rules and kind of saying, well, we used to have to follow all these rules and we atone for our sins with the blood of animals. Right. And, right. and I remember reading about all those rules and, and, and here, but he's saying that, that Jesus went through that and atoned with his own blood for all of our sins. And I thought that to me was much more helpful as a, as an image, as to sort of show the all all encompassing nature of Christ's sacrifice, then the like language about the high priesthood and Melchizedek and all that. So I mean, I don't. I struggled with the first half of this, but then it, uh, some of the other images were more helpful to me. Yeah, I'm I'm glad it did because uh, it it is a book that that requires struggle with. And I would just add a little note about Melchizedek is that, and I think what the the reference to it is here. In, in the Old Testament, Melchizedek is a king who appears without, uh, dynasty. It says he has no, no heritage, no, no, uh, nobody that comes before him. And he just drops from heaven, bam, like out of nowhere. And part of the, the link of high priest with Melchizedek in Hebrews is this emphasis that he just comes from heaven almost out of nowhere and, and, but, but doesn't, but his high, but Christ's high priestliness again is, is exercised in suffering and temptation and empathy, uh, too. So that's, that's just a little comment on, on Melchizedek. Melchizedek also offers a tithe and that's where we get tithing from, but that's, that's another side comment here. Roger. Yeah, I think he disappears into nowhere also. He does, yes. Yeah, he um, reappears in Hebrews. <laughs> yeah, and um, and that was kind of interesting. But yeah. I, I agree with what Catherine was saying, was that later, the later portion helps, 
you know, kind of understand, well, we have a new type of high priest and he comes from perhaps the same kind of credentials that Melchizedek had, but, but he has done these far superior kinds of things. Uh, but they're superior because they're inferior. They're they are superior because they're inferior, because mm. they're suffering and identifying with us. It's very linked. I mean, it's, it is very consistent with Philippians 2 from Paul that we had as our affirmation of faith today. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Those two would go together. Um, something else I would, oh, I know what I wanted to say about this. Um, you know, again, I grew up in a culture, a, a, a Bible Belt culture, where the blood of the Lamb or the blood of Christ was very common and heavy in in the, you know, at least in the in the other churches and then the theology of the day. And I don't, you know, I've always it took me a long time to, I, I didn't relate to that very well, and it took me a long time to to sort of accept that language or get comfortable with it. But what I, what I came to realize is, even though it had been told me many times theologically, was in, in the Old Testament, the blood is life. It is the, it is the source and the, and the force of life, you know, in, in the animal. And so to have a blood sacrifice is, is the giving of life to God. And, and so if we think of the blood of Christ as being, um, as being the term or the symbol of, of God's death, it, of, of Christ's death, it is, it is truly giving life to God, dedicating life to God. So it, it's not as, it doesn't have to be as bloody an image as, as it calls up for us, but, but it is truly, uh, you know, this high priest giving his life to God as, as, as all high priests, as all priests are supposed to do, or as that's why we pick the firstborn and sacrifice the firstborn on the blood of, blood of the altar, the blood of the lamb, because it was the most important source of life. Um, I'm just as an aside, I don't know if y'all, if any of you all saw, um, I think it was on CNN yesterday, there was, there was a, the reporter was interviewing people going to one of the churches that has not shut down in, I think this was one in Ohio, and they were, they were actually interviewing members of the church that were going in and they were saying, why, you know, why are you, why are you going? You know, it's not safe. Why are you, uh, putting yourselves and other people in danger? And this one woman that was being interviewed just, just kept saying over and over, I am covered in the blood of the lamb. Nothing can happen to me. And it was, uh, to be, that was, uh, not a moving use of that phrase, but, uh, but an offensive use of it. Like, you know, because I'm covering the blood of the lamb, none of these rules or regulations apply to me and I'm not going to get this disease. And I just, you know, I just shudder at, at a use like that. And that's the kind of stuff that I, that was sort of around where I grew up that, that the blood of the lamb was, was something that was both icky but also seemed threatening and here it's 
I think the use here and the true use of it is that it's it's giving of life to God. Uh, so anyway, other comments. We're doing okay. I, I don't. Is there anybody else that'd like to say or ask a question? I know this is challenging stuff. So uh, if not, then let's go to chapter 11 because that that is a little bit easier and it's it's i don't know that it's more fun but it can be more fun it's it's um it's got some beauty in it and and it's not quite as difficult to understand but chapter 11 verse actually 1 through 40 and then i want to talk about the first two verses of chapter 12 which kind of brings it to a close but chapter 11 begins with this wonderful definition of faith that has really been meaningful to Christians for it's one of the verses that you can just pluck out of a book and and becomes very instructive and meaningful but it begins with um, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen and what, you know, if you think of one of those favorite hymns we've got of blessed assurance, uh, I mean, assurance is, is never proof, but it's, it's deeper than proof. It, it is a heartfelt trust in God that, that, that is reassuring. I mean, if you think of the phrase reassuring, it's something that that we hold to and believe and shapes us and forms us at, at even deeper than, than the intellectual level. But what we are assured, what a faith assures us of is that for which we hope. And we are convicted or convinced of things that we have not yet seen. So it is, it is promissory. We are we are giving our hearts and our trust and our belief to what God promises, you know, to what's to come, not to what we have proof in now. Um, and I, uh, that's also very consistent with the gospel of John, but it's just, you know, I know that I've, I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot the last two weeks and part of it is out of, uh, I've, I've never, I haven't really yet gotten afraid that I'm going to get this. Uh, and yet there's no logical reason why I shouldn't be afraid. Um, and, and, and yet as hard as this is, and we, you know, we've now got, you know, one person in the church who's lost a parent to this, the other parent may have it. You know, one of our staff members, has a sister who, who is very dangerously ill with this virus. Uh, we've had two other, three other people, two, two, three other people tested, one of whom has had it and, and is now out of the danger zone. So it's real, you know, it's close. And I'm sure that, that many of you have people who are close at hand that, that are, that are suffering with this virus. Uh, but somehow, I still have an assurance that the thing I hope for, not only that, that I won't get it and maybe I will, but, but more than that, I have this assurance 
that we are going to get through this, that there is going to be life and earth and baseball on the other side of, of what we're going through. But, uh, but I haven't seen that. You know, there's nothing to prove that. There's nothing to prove that we won't, many of us, be deeply, deeply impacted or, or endangered by this, as lucky as our lives are. So I, I don't know. That's just kind of what that verse means to me in this context is, is, is assurance is trust, but, but it's not proof and we haven't seen it yet. So I've said enough about that. Does anybody? Yeah. Can I jump in, Larry? It's Bill. Bill. Okay. Um, two things. Uh, I have to preface this by saying that, um, Hebrews 11.1 1 is probably the most moving verse in the entire Bible, both Testaments for me. Okay. I've said in previous uh, classes, but the meaning of the verse did not come through to me until I was in a French Bible study class reading the particular verse. And the word that is used for assurance uh, in the standard French Protestant Bible is assurance, and that means two things. It does mean assurance, but it also means insurance, as in an insurance company. And that's when the light bulb went off. I am insured if I have faith. Uh How can that be? Well, look at the verse in English. Uh, the firm assurance of uh, things that one hopes for. That's a passive voice. And um, if you have ever taught writing, you know that you shouldn't ever use passive voice if you can avoid it. Who is doing the assuring? It, now, I'd like an answer to that. There's only one entity who can do the assuring. It's God. Mm-hmm. Now, if God is assuring me of the things that I cannot see, can it possibly be false? Hmm. No, it can't. Yeah. And so one should have enormous hope on the basis of this one verse alone. And I'll stop preaching on that point. Okay. You're entitled. (laughs) Harry, this is Carol. Um, so I'm not sure this is exactly related, but this is from Hebrews. This is what um, worried me when I was reading it. Um, and it's um, it's 12, 7, and it's about discipline. And I thought as I was reading that paragraph to the end, they were talking about this pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow, like, I it's, it's scary, but I mean, I think he's just saying like, look, once in a while, we're going to get reminded that, um, we don't do everything right. I certainly think before this pandemic hit, we were in a world was doing things wrong and had, um, started many things that we had been doing right. We started to do wrong. And so this was very scary to, to me, but. I think he's saying if we do have faith and we are righteous, then we'll come out okay in the end. At least I hope that's what I was saying. Yeah. I, yeah, thanks for, 
for pointing to that, Carol. I hadn't, I, I had not been, you know, paying attention to that, but, um, I think that there are certainly many passages, not, I mean, there are enough passages in the Bible that speak of discipline in both the Old Testament. And if nothing else, Carol, you've pointed to a place where discipline of the Lord is used in the New Testament that just proves to me that it's not all just Old Testament stuff when we have that. But um, I think it's, I think if you have a faith that has a really long-term perspective about it, um, that that God is ultimately both creator and redeemer and and will ultimately redeem things, um, that it is easier to interpret a passage like this um, as discipline in the best sense. I mean, any, anybody that has been a parent or has been the product of good, of a really good parent knows, uh, knows what it's like to discipline or be disciplined in a way that, that is, uh, redemptive in a way that's helpful. Um, and it's a very fine line. Because the, 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 ex, the human exercise of redemption is off, is so often, uh, you know, misused or, um, or not helpful. Uh, and, and I do think that when the Bible speaks of the discipline of the Lord, it is always speaking of discipline for, for rehabilitation and hope. Um, you know, I, cringe and and would would i've not heard anybody yet in the religious sector say well god is sending this virus to punish us for you know materialism or homosexuality or some of the things that we've heard said about past uh natural disasters um and, and i cringe at those statements but i mean the, the human race even survived <laughs> the flood and 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 maybe the maybe if there there's a disciplinary aspect of this it will be particularly in our culture that that we will learn to appreciate some of what staying at home and being with family and taking walks and not being on this perpetual uh, chasing of the clock and chasing of, of consumerism and chasing of work has been for us. Uh, because it, you know, you know, many, many people have, I think, I know it's something I've experienced of, of the beauty of slowing down. Now, I don't have kids at home that I'm trying to teach. So people that are empty nesters get, get the advantage of this without, without some of the responsibilities, but, um, uh, but, but if, if we're going to use, see this as disciplinary in any sense, I hope it's disciplinary in, in the sense of reassuring and insurance and not, and not simply the wrath of God or the, the punishing of God. So, Aaron, I, yeah, um, Roger, go ahead. Yeah. When I read that, I, um, remembered five, eight, um, where he, 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Yeah. And having been made perfect. So I, I wondered whether that was just kind of, again, making reference back to what Christ has been through and his example, whether it was a reminder of that. Yeah. That's good. And that's what Stephanie, that's the, the, section that she pointed to earlier. Uh, you know, it, it would not hurt us as a culture, as people living in Northern Virginia, if if we grew up, if we learned as a son or a daughter that that the value of time at home and the value of rest and the value of more sleep, I mean, we, what we're really on right now is a very enforced Sabbath. Uh, you know, and, and it's, uh, there's a beauty to it. Dan, Dan and, uh, Caroline, Judy, just, we, Maggie and I are now walking every day for an hour, hour and a half, and it's wonderful. We've never done that. We're walking the neighborhood. I'm sure you all are having these experiences. You're meeting your neighbors. You're talking to your neighbors. You know, you're seeing people that you've never seen before, but the Judys live generally in our neighborhood and, We've walked by a couple of times and texted them to say, hey, come out and we'll socially distant in the yard. And we've never gotten a response. So I sent her a, sent them a text a couple of days ago and said, hey, we've tried this twice. So they turned tables on us today. And I was down here badly preparing this. And Maggie was up taking her recovery from sermon nap. And I get this text from Caroline. We're outside. We want to say hello. And so I went outside and they were already down the street, but they came up. And Dan had his Georgia sweatshirt on. And Dan Judy, who, you know, lives and breathes the University of Georgia football in the fall, said, you know, it might be good for me if we don't have a college football season. Oh, that breaks my heart. I know. I I am with Dan and the Georgia fans, but he's right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Maybe that's (laughs) something we'll learn, you know, that, that they're, and, and it's going to be, I mean, if we come roaring back, and I know economically we need to come roaring back and all that, but but it will be very short-lived if we don't somehow carve carve the time out. And I, you know, yeah, some of you all know that I've been the, I haven't been a holdup on technology, but I have have not, I've been really skeptical of having worship services by technology or if you had told me six weeks ago I'd be teaching a class by technology and and actually liking it, you know, I I would have said, you know, there's no way. Now, the fact is we've all been together for six months and we sort of know each other's faces and quirks and things like that. So I don't know how you can create a community this way, but but it's been nice. I mean, you know, I, I meet with Vienna Presbyterian every Sunday night at 730 and now – we quit at six and, you know, I can actually have an hour and a half without trying to race out to get dinner and meet with the committee. So maybe that's all part of the discipline of this that, that will come out. So uh, we're getting really close to our time. And thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I just want to, I want to go through and we're not going to read this whole chapter, but, but starting at chapter four and 11, and this may be familiar to you. The author then recounts this cloud of witnesses that comes before. 
and uh, it's, it's just great. One of the fun exercises, I've just highlighted a few verses, but one of the fun exercises for those of you who have had Old Testament is to go through and read what Hebrew says about Abel and then go back and read the Cain and Abel story or read read what he says about, uh, he comes to Abraham a lot, about Isaac's sacrifice, about Moses being hidden by his parents and uh, and actually, you know, killing a slave that was beating another slave. Uh, but just to to go back to read how Hebrews interprets or appropriates those stories. There's nothing wrong with what the writer's doing, but, but it's, you know, the, the writer's not telling the whole story, and that's exactly the way we interpret scripture. I mean, we take what this story says to us today, but that may not be the whole meaning of the story. So, so you're going through by faith, Abel offered God a, a more acceptable sacrifices than Cain. So he received approval as righteous God himself, giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through faith, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he didn't experience death. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Uh, In 13, all of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. That's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, by faith, down at 23, Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth because they saw that the child was beautiful. That's actually um, one of the things that's said in Genesis. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Eh, that's Go back and read the story of Moses and his killing a slave and see if you would write it that way. It's not incorrect, but he considered abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he too was looking ahead to a reward. Uh, By faith, 29, people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. This is just a great review of all that Old Testament study you've done. And then it gets to, um, I really like 32 through 38. And then we'll we'll finish with, with where it leads. What more should I say, 32? Anytime a preacher says that and then goes on, you know, he goes on. For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Remember, Jephthah is the one that made the false vow and had to sacrifice his daughter. It's interesting that he makes it into here. Who through faith, and I love this, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, which David did, Quenched raging fire, Daniel, escaped the edge of the sword, one run strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. 
Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. I don't know where that comes from. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. There's just this lyrical, lyrical recitation of suffering that the people of God have gone through as individuals. And all of those pretty much refer to a biblical story or character. And then the writer says, yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better so that they would not without us be made perfect. It's this sense that that then Christ comes and those who have faith in Christ reach back and put all of these other terrific saints and sufferers into this covenant of one. Uh, and then the writer goes on in 12.1 with, with what is the, the covenant of witnesses. Therefore, again, that beautiful word, therefore, since we today are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this puts ancestor.com to shame. Okay. Uh, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, like we're taking, taking the garment of sin off that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. The final way, at least in the two hours we have, that this author uh, tries to restore confidence in faith is connect where people are with all of those Old Testament stories and with Christ looking ahead, saying we too can disabuse ourselves of this weight of sin, attach ourselves to the author and pioneer of our faith and look for the that which is to come, which is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Ah, that's it. It is 5.58. We have time for two minutes of discussion and questions. Anybody say it? Frank, you've been quiet. You haven't said anything since we've been in this new format. Larry. Yes. I'm not Frank. You're um, not Frank, but but we would I'm, love to hear from Beth. Actually, I am Frank, but I'm. it is Beth <laughs> who is Frank. However, right. um, I uh, it, it's food for thought. I would be interested next time uh, or later or not ever, as the case may be. But it would be interesting to see our reactions to Hebrew, Hebrews and some of the clarifications it provides and some of the questions it may also raise for each of us as Christians uh, to also examine this writing outside of the context of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. In, in, you know, just, just because 
how would we have viewed these chapters, um, you know, if if our calendar had had us reading them, say, eight weeks ago. Yeah, a month ago or eight weeks ago. Yeah. Right, right, right. Whatever. It's just a food for thought. It's a That's good point, all. Beth. It, it certainly. You know, we have a we have a different we're living under a different atmosphere than we were before of all of these texts. Anyone else, Larry? Just real quick, I um, thank you, Frank. Thank, thank you for your thank you for your teaching today, and thanks everyone for being together today. Um, these verses in Hebrews have been. Uh, for me, a tremendous, tremendous source of assurance and reassurance in a lot of experiences in life and uh, for people that I know and love. Um, and I've also come to really approach a lot of the questions and discussion, I think, as Carol had brought up before about uh, about the discipline of God with a lot more humility than I once did. Um it is so tempting to think about the discipline of God being really for what all those other people need. Yeah. Uh, people who are not us, people who, um, well, just people who are not us. I'll just leave it at that. And um, it is incredibly reassuring to know that our Savior um, underwent what he did Um as the son of God and fully man, uh, yet for us. And that um, as we are living in this very strange time, um, that is without precedent in our modern day in America, um, we know that our Lord is, is one who knows us and one who loves us and one who wants best for us. Yeah. That's really beautiful, Frank. I, uh, I have, I have truly all of my life in as much as I've, as I've thought about and, and related to Christ, I have related. I, I have, I have in times of my own suffering and, and even, even as a teenager, uh, when I've been going through something, I have always thought that that Christ is with me and that this too shall pass, that this will have an end at some point. And, and, and I too have really, um, have suffered is really, really valuable to me as a, as a co-surfer. Uh, so it's a great question, Beth. And, uh, I hope someday we get to return and read this book outside of coronavirus. <laughs> okay, all of us. So, what? Yes, somebody. It's Judith. Judith, yes. So I, I just wanted to mention to everyone, um, you know, I think because Easter is coming, pr- probably people realize that Passover is also coming. Right. And um, which is my favorite holiday of the year. And I thought I was going to be missing a Seder until today we were invited to a Zoom Seder. Yeah. Um, but truthfully, in my whole life, I could not have imagined 
the situation that we find ourselves in. I should have been able to, but I, I couldn't have. And, and the thought of going through a Seder, uh, in this current situation, I, I can't even imagine what it's going to feel like. I think it's going to feel like you are there, mm-hmm. you know, because we're in a plague. And we're talking about the plagues and as much as we've always tried every year to imagine that, you know, this is what God did for me, not for people thousands of years ago. This is what God did for me. It feels like that is real in a way that it couldn't possibly be for me before. Um, because I really am terrified about this virus. If, if I get it, I can't think that I could possibly live through it. And so I, I feel like there is a, a new poignancy and reality to this co- coming week, possibly for everyone, but certainly celebrating the Seder in the current condition I couldn't have imagined it before. So I just wanted to put that out there. Well, thank you. And it is, it's not lost on, uh, me and hasn't been for, for a couple of weeks that, you know, the, the projections, especially in New York of the apex or the height or, I mean, we are, we are likely entering the week, which at least in this part of the country will have the most deaths, uh, are all the projections, uh, right at Passover right at Easter, right at the time of life. And, uh, and I do think that, you know, the walks that we take and the, and the changing, the recognition of our true priorities, I think that you are absolutely right about that. I also think that this is creating a fear of each other that we will have to move through and past. Janet yeah. and I had to call a plumber to the house this morning. Yeah, she said and, and we were, I was terrified of him. Like yeah. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I don't, didn't know if I'd rather die by flood or die by plague. <laughs> and, you know, so I think, you know, I, I want to be able to welcome people and hug them and um including everybody who's uh in this class. I'm, Looking forward to being uh, able to connect in proximity at some point. That's it. We will. So, thank you all. Let's let's close with a prayer, okay? So, dear God, we I appreciate the the sharing that people have the the fear and pain that we are going through, but the confidence that we are going through it. not alone that among the people with whom we're going through it are the or the or the faces that appear on these screens i do ask that you will protect each of us simply because we know ourselves and we know our friends and we don't want people to succumb to this but i also ask that you will protect the world our country our families And that we will get through this as people. 
rediscover the power of love and community and, and know at the end of this, uh, your redemptive will and purposes. Give us the ability to cling to that and the assurance of, of that for which we hope. Amen. Thank you, folks. See you next week.